0: Thank you once again for joining with us this morning and thank you to jonathan as he's led our thoughts and our reflections through our service this morning Uh, as you'll know we're now in our final week of our short advent series that we've been running and we've entitled this series unexpected christmas Uh, and yes that title is a pointer to the sad reality that uh, for many of us we're facing a christmas that we wouldn't have expected to in 2020 but it's also a reference back to the biblical story Uh, where it seems that the very first Christmas was indeed unexpected for many. And of course, as we've said each week, this unexpected Christmas that many experienced then was not unexpected for God. He had been orchestrating world history to bring this this wonderful plan to be. Uh, He is indeed eternally and sovereignly orchestrating all things to his purposes. Uh, And so far, we've looked at the experiences of Mary, of Joseph, and of the shepherds. And one of the things that unites their stories, and indeed one of the things that shows the unexpected nature of it for them, uh, is that each of them are are specifically told at some point in that story, do not fear or or, fear not. Uh, Now, the encounter that we're going to look at today doesn't contain that command, doesn't contain that encouragement, but there's definitely some clues that this scenario was not expected for some of the characters that we're going to meet today. Firstly, there's more than just a hint of fear for the Magi, for the wise men. Um, We know that because this encounter ends with them being warned not to go back to Herod. Um, They're told to go home by another route. And the implication being that there would be trouble looming if they were to go back to Herod. So that's the first clue that this was somehow unexpected. This was somehow different than things had been planned out. The second and probably more obvious Reason for thinking that this Christmas was unexpected for the characters in this account today is the reaction that we see from Herod. As we'll come to see, the news that this baby had been born led him to being disturbed, we're told, troubled in verse three. He didn't want he didn't he didn't see this coming and it rattled him. And and the reason it disturbed, it troubled, it rattled him was because of the identity of this baby. See, the title that the Magi use when they come in search of this baby, that's what evokes this reaction in Herod. That's what troubles him. That's what disturbs him. You see, the Magi come searching and they arrive in Jerusalem and we see this in verse 2. And they ask, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? King of the Jews, a a new baby born, a new baby king, a royal birth. Well, surely the one who would know about this royal birth would be the one currently sitting on the throne. Surely Herod should have known, should have expected, should have been aware of what was happening. But this doesn't seem to be the case. And of course, he sees this news as anything but positive. This news, indeed, he sees as a threat to him. And maybe this baby is a a threat to his throne, a threat to his rule, a threat to his influence and his power. But maybe even personally for Herod, if there was a new king around, then he knew that he would have to suffer some of his independence. Uh, This was not only a threat to his throne, it was a threat to his control over his own life. If there was a new king coming to take power, then perhaps Herod would have to submit to that king instead of being master of his own universe. Uh, And it's that angle where I think we see an overlap with with our own lives and our own experience as we think of the baby in the manger who came as king. You see, in this encounter with the Magi and in their response to the baby, uh, we're, we're confronted with the identity of the one who was born, the king of the Jews, and we're challenged by their worshipful response so we're confronted by the identity that the magi declare and then we're challenged by the worshipful response that the magi offer in a nutshell this whole encounter forces us to ask the question who do you say he is who do you say jesus is is he just the center of a nativity scene for you is he is he simply a good moral teacher maybe he's someone you know about but but you couldn't say that you know him Or can you say that you know him? You know him personally. You know him as your king, as your savior, your Messiah, your Lord, the one who reigns over your life. Who do you say he is? And to help us unpack this question, uh, we need to see what this passage shows us about the identity of the key character here, the, the Jesus character. And as we look through these verses We see there's information given to us about who Jesus is from many different sources. We see from the Magi, we see from Herod himself, we see from from Old Testament prophecy and indeed from Matthew as he writes this account. And so in these 12 verses at the start of Matthew 2, we see the baby who has been born is referred to in these ways. He's referred to as Jesus in verse 1, King of the Jews in verse 2, Messiah in verse 4, ruler and shepherd in verse 6 and as the child in verses 8, 9, and 11. Jesus, King of the Jews, Messiah, Ruler, Shepherd, Child. And what we're going to do is simply walk through some of these titles and try to discover what each of them show us about the identity of the baby who's been born. And then we'll finish by considering what all of that means in terms of what does his identity mean and how does that then inform our response to him. And so let's firstly think about this term, Jesus. In verse one, we see that Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Jesus was born. Uh, And this may simply seem like the name of of the baby that was born. It it sounds straightforward, doesn't it? And in some ways, yes, uh, it's clear. uh, And maybe we would skip over it. Um, But it's good for us to pause here for a moment. You see, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, um, when Jack was leading us through Joseph's encounter at the end of chapter one of Matthew's gospel, we see that the name Jesus is not incidental. I flick back just a few verses into verse 21 of chapter one, and we see she will give him she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. This is the angel speaking directly to Joseph, informing him of what he should call the baby that was to be born. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, his name is to be Jesus because. He will save his people from their sins. His name is purposeful. His name gives us an insight into who he is and what he came to do. As Jack helped us to see, Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And so this name is very significant. It shows that what Jesus will accomplish, he will save his people from their sins. Uh, And sometimes we use uh, long and seemingly complicated terms to describe what Jesus came to do. We talk about salvation, redemption, reconciliation, justification, sacrificial atonement. These terms are good and right and so true. And they're big words that help us unpack what it means to be saved from our sin, which is why Jesus came. You see, he came to save because we're completely powerless in our own strength to improve our standing before God. He came to redeem. He came to purchase us back to the God who created us and the God who loves us. He came to reconcile, to restore relationship between humanity and God and that relationship which would be destroyed by sin. He came to justify, to pay the penalty of the sin and the debt that our sin owes. He came to pay it so that we would be considered righteous. He is the sacrificial atonement. He is the one who died in our place, paid the penalty in our place. He sacrificed himself in our place in order that the wrath of God against our sin would be fully satisfied. See, he came to save, to redeem, to reconcile, to justify, to be the sacrificial atonement. And all of these big terms, they could be summarized under that umbrella that Jesus came to save sinners from their sin. Jesus, the Lord saves. That's who he is. That's why he came. And that's the first title we see of him here in verse one. Jesus was born. Secondly, we see The Magi use the term the king of the Jews in verse 2. And we're going to link that with the term Messiah that Herod speaks of in verse 3. And we can do that because these terms are are somewhat overlapping. You you see, in this setting, it's the Magi who ask for the king of the Jews who has been born. Uh, And Herod's response then is to go to the the experts in the law and and ask for where the scriptures say the Messiah is to be born. So clearly, there's at least an overlap, if not an interchangeability in these two terms, King of the Jews, and Messiah. And and now we could spend a a great deal of time unpacking the connections and implications of this title. But we've already referred to some of that in this short teaching series. But that doesn't mean, however, that we're we're just going to skip over it this morning because it's one of the key aspects of this encounter. We've seen through the angelic proclamations to Joseph, and also particularly to Mary and to the shepherds, the reality that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament promise. He's fulfilling everything that was spoken about the Messiah, the one who was to come. And Matthew, in his gospel, goes to extra lengths, it seems, to show how completely Jesus fulfills the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. It's one of the reasons he begins his gospel with this family history of Jesus. He's clearly explaining how Jesus is the descendant of King David. And of course, it was through King David line that the Messiah was promised to come. We can just look back to Second Samuel 7, as we've referred to a number of times in this series. And then throughout chapter 2, Matthew continues to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise for the Messiah. He does that by quoting Micah, as we'll come to see in verse 6 and 7. And further on then through chapter 2, he shows how even the, the escape that, G, that Joseph, Mary and Jesus have to go to Egypt in order to flee from Herod. But that is all to be fulfillment of prophecy, that out of Egypt I called my son. And so it goes, the list goes on and on of how Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, indeed the whole of Scripture, shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised about the Messiah. He is indeed the King of the Jews. But, but why is that all important? Why why should we uh, spend so much time thinking about that? Well, being sure that Jesus is the promised one who was to come, the one that God promised would sit on the throne of King David forever. And just think of what the, and the angel spoke to Mary in Luke 1, 32 and 33, that he would establish his kingdom forever. Th- those are the promises that God made about the one who would come. And this one who would come is Jesus. And when we consider this and when we think about how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was promised, then it helps us to more deeply appreciate everything that Jesus said about himself when he was here and everything that this rest of scripture says about what is to come. See, in a sense, we can look back over centuries of history and see the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the coming of Jesus. And then we have complete confidence to look ahead to what God has promised will come in the future. And we also can know that all the promises about what would be achieved through Jesus, through the Messiah, are true for those who claim to follow him and have devoted their lives to him. So knowing that Jesus came as the promised Messiah means that we can believe his claims about who he is, about what he came to do. And as we've already seen, he came to save people from their sins. That was what the Messiah came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, now Jesus coming as as the baby in Bethlehem uh, is is maybe understandable for us who are looking back with centuries of hindsight. Um, But it might have been quite unexpected for the Jews of the day. Uh, As they awaited the Messiah, they may have expected a a military general, a a political powerhouse. They likely didn't expect a, a relatively unknown man from Nazareth with very humble beginnings. This doesn't seem to be very kingly. Nor did many expect the Messiah to be executed by the Romans on a hill outside Jerusalem. None of this seemed to be the way things were expected to go. That's not how a glorious kingdom would be experienced. And again, maybe we see this story with a little more fullness with our hindsight. And we can appreciate how even this most most brutal of deaths was exactly how God had planned it to be. That's the way it had to be. For Jesus to be the saviour, he had to die. Now, it might seem strange to jump from Jesus, the baby in Bethlehem to the hill at at Calvary. But the reason I think we can do that is that we see the title, the king of the Jews, placed above his head as he hung on the tree. All four gospel writers include that detail about the crucifixion. And I I suppose we we may see a sense of of almost twisted sarcasm in that plaque being placed above him. that was his crime that he claimed to be the king of the Jews Yet, yet for us. For us who believe his claims, there's no shame in that plaque being above his head. It is true. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And rather than questioning that by him hanging on the tree, by Jesus hanging on the tree, it proves that he is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus, the Messiah. And getting back to Matthew 2. Uh, The the next titles that we see being used of Jesus are those in the quotation from the Old Testament prophet Micah. And we see these as the ruler and shepherd. And, And let's read that quotation again from verse six. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, a ruler who will shepherd And these words and indeed their fuller expression back in Micah help us to understand the type of ruler that this long awaited king would be. We've just been thinking about Jesus's death and and there may have been an expectation that the Messiah should have come with, with political and military power. But that's not the type of leader. That's not the type of ruler that God had anticipated. Rather, the ruler who would come would shepherd God's people. And there's such gentleness associated with that that picture of a shepherd, isn't there? And of course, we see that gentleness and that caring nature through Jesus' own words as he described himself as the good shepherd in John 10. And maybe we have that image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, which is, of course, a wonderful and true part of his character. But let's not be fooled into thinking that this image of shepherd is in some way weak. Remember King David, whose line Jesus came to fulfill? Well, he started life as a shepherd. And we can see from 1 Samuel 17 that as a shepherd, he fought off lions and bears. This was not a job for the faint-hearted or for the weak. But his, his strength and his protective instinct of a shepherd, it was a result of his deep love and care for his flock. Now, that's the nurturing, caring, strong sense which is promised in the ruler who would come, who would shepherd God's people. I mentioned John 10 in passing there. And perhaps it'd be helpful for you to take some time to enjoy those verses from verse 1 to 18 of John 10 and reflect on what it means to be led by Jesus, the good shepherd, the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, King of the Jews, Messiah, ruler, shepherd, Hopefully, on this quick survey of these titles, we're gaining a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and of why he came. And and the last term that's used of Jesus in these verses from Matthew 2, it's actually repeated three times. It's that term, child. In verse 8, we see Herod instructed wise men, go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Verse 9, we see the star that guided the, guided the Magi stopped over the place where the child was. Again, in verse 11, as the Magi come into the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. Jesus, the child. Now, of course, this is significant because it shows the, the humility of the gift of God. It's a miraculous enough to think of the eternal God stepping into his creation. But to consider him as a helpless baby is hard for us to comprehend. I, I thought I sort of had my head around this until this year when uh, Sam started playing with these little nativity figures that we have in our in our living room here. And he started acting out as kids do. He acted out little scenarios and playing with them. And and and, and it almost struck me that Jesus, Sam understands Jesus as a baby better than I do. I almost found myself wanting to step in and try to explain to our nearly three-year-old that, that Jesus might not have acted like that. He might not have played like that. But but I think in some ways I've I've maybe idealized or or sanitized the idea of Jesus as a child, what it would have been like for Mary and Joseph to raise him. Now, I realize that Jesus was without sin, and so he is completely unique. I understand all of that. But in terms of his dependence on his earthly parents for for nurture and for support, uh, I'm just not sure I'd grasped the reality of that in such a way before. And so it makes the truth of passages like Philippians 2 even more remarkable where Paul is writing about Jesus's humility. And he says these words in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, who Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. You see in these verses, we see the wonder of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, and that's a topic that that demands so much more explanation exploration that we can give right now. but realizing Jesus' humanity is vital to understanding who he is, and that's because when we realize Jesus' humanity, we see that he knows our and and he knows us and knows our experience better than we often understand and appreciate. He knows what it means to have a body that hurts. He knows what it means to experience the loss of someone close. He knows what it is to be tempted to sin. He knows what it is to have friends betray you. He knows what it is to choose obedience to his heavenly father rather than his own wishes. He knows what it is to be human because he was human. He came as a child. And therefore... As we see through passages like Hebrews 4 and 14 to 16, Jesus knows what our experience is, and therefore he is able to help. He's able to help us through it. He's able to show us the way through it because he has led a human life. He's led a sinless life, yes. But he shows us then the life that we're intended to live. And as we obediently seek to follow him, and he demonstrates what it means to live in this world as his follower. Jesus the child. And so we see these wonderful titles Jesus, King of the Jews, Messiah, Ruler, Shepherd, Child. And we can see that they tell us so much about who Jesus is. He is the Saviour, the Messiah, the, the gentle and strong Shepherd. He is the one who understands but it's not just enough to to know these things, to see these things, we have to respond. And this encounter in Matthew two, shows us the two responses that we can make to Jesus. We can follow the example of Herod and reject him and what he came to offer, or we can follow the example of the Magi and fall down and worship before him. You see, as we said at the beginning, Herod saw the, the birth of Jesus as a threat to everything that he had control over everything he wanted for his life. A new king was not good news for Herod. Uh, and that's the overlap that we have with Herod's experience at times. Um, when, when we decide in our response to Jesus, we have to answer the question of his kingship in our lives. And this is difficult because the very nature of sin means that we long to be kings and queens of our own lives, masters of our own universe, with our needs and desires and wants right at the center of that universe. And the Advent devotional that many of us have been using as a church family highlighted this reality on day 11. Paul Tripp there said it like this. this. "Is a long quote, but it's worth reading. There's simply no denying it. Life this side of eternity is one big and unending war of kingdoms. Much of our inner turmoil and our interpersonal struggles are the direct result of kingdoms in conflict. Sin causes us to live outward, or sorry, inwardly directed, selfish lives, Instead of lives of upward worship and outward love that we were created to live. He goes on to say Jesus came to destroy our self oriented kingdoms and dethrone us as kings over our own lives. In violent grace, he works to destroy every last shred of our allegiance to self-rule. And in rescuing grace, he lovingly sets up his righteous rule in our hearts. And he concludes that chapter by saying the baby wasn't wearing a crown and had none of the trappings of royalty, but don't be misled. He came as a king. He came to be king and his kingship is your salvation. See, Herod didn't see good news in Jesus's kingship. He saw a threat and he rejected the new baby king. But the Magi, they responded differently. Differently. It's unclear in some ways how much of an understanding they had of, of the, the breadth of what was really going on here. But from what they know, they respond with extravagant worship. They set off on a long journey. They come searching for this baby king. They follow the guiding star. And when they find him, they respond with joyful, generous worship. I love the detail of verse 10, particularly in the ESV translation. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy you get the picture don't you joy and as they enter the house where jesus is they fall down and worship they open their treasures they present them to jesus clearly these things were valuable they were costly items which they willingly lay down before this baby king and this is the kind of example i want to follow i want to recognize who this baby is i want to joyfully respond in generous worship that's that's what following jesus is all about And because of what he's done for us as our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, then we offer our whole selves to him. And we ask him to direct our lives and to use our lives for his glory. We await his coming again by following his shepherding voice. That's the joyful response of worship. So getting back to to where we began, who do you say he is? And how is your life marked by the answer to that question? I pray that we would, we would know him, God with us, Emmanuel, that we would know him not just as the baby in the manger, but as Jesus, the one who came to save us from our sin. We would know him as the king and the Messiah, the promised plan of God's salvation. We would know him as the ruler, as the shepherd, the, the gentle but strong, authoritative leader of our lives. And we would know him as Jesus the child, fully divine, fully human, God made flesh who came to redeem and to reconcile humanity to its creator. And Because we know him in these ways, because we know him as such, may we worship him with all of our lives with everything we have, may he indeed be king of our lives. And therefore, would our whole, our whole lives speak of him to those that we know and love. And may it all be for his glory. Let's, let's pray together as we finish. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus was born that he came, he took on human flesh, he dwelt among us. Father, what a miracle and what mystery this is. And yet God, in that we see your salvation plan. And so we thank you. We thank you that Jesus came. We thank you that he came in order to save his people from their sins. We thank you that he came as King of the Jews, Messiah, the one that you promised would come. And Father, In in light of the the fulfillment of the promise that he has come, we thank you and we wait in expectation for the promise that he will come again to rule and to reign in the fullness of his kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the, the humility that we need to bow ourselves before you as our ruler, as our shepherd. God, that you would indeed be king king in our hearts, king in our lives, king in our families, king in our church family, king over our community. Father, we pray that your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us, Father, when when we struggle and when that battle of, kings, of kingdoms is going on in our lives. Uh, Father, may we surrender our whole lives to you. And God, we recognize that that is not a, an easy prayer, that is not a simple prayer. It is a bold prayer, but we pray it, Father. We pray that you would give us the obedience to lay ourselves before you. You would give us the the joy of laying ourselves before you. That we, like the Magi, would, uh, would worship with, and we would rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Because, Lord, as our good shepherd, you came to give life and life in all its fullness. Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the wonderful opportunity it gives us again to reflect on these glorious truths. And we pray, God, that this, although this Christmas may be very different than many of us expected it to be, we pray that you would grind us in the wonder of the true meaning of Christmas. Lord, that we would bow the knee before you and worship you as king. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah.